So I'm very, very excited uh, to be stepping into this series, the uh, Ancient Cliff Notes. And what we're doing with this series is what we're taking Bible stories, stories in the Old Testament particularly, uh, and what we're doing is we're looking at them kind of as a whole. We're looking at the big picture of these stories. So it's not quite what some of the sermons are like when we did First John, and we went like through every single verse, and we explained every detail of every verse. It's not really going to be like that, even though sometimes in the series we will probably do that. Uh, but the ultimate goal is to just teach you that story, and then, uh, and then to kind of figure out, okay, what's the story? What happened then? What does it mean for us today, now? And then what, uh, what, in what ways does it point to Jesus? So those are kind of the three basic, the gist of how we're going to try to lead each of these messages. So Pastor Austin taught two weeks ago about Samuel. And then he carried into the last week, which kind of went together talking about Saul. So those were kind of like a, they kind of went together. And then today the story that I'm going to talk about actually happened really at the same time in history uh, as those two stories. So if you look at it on a timeline, uh, you see here uh, in about 1050 BC, Samuel announce, uh, anoints Saul to be king. Uh, but Samuel had been a judge over Israel from 1076 to about 1051. So he was a judge leading up until the time that he anointed him king. Because we didn't have a king, we just had judges until we, and then Saul was the first king. So, but at the same time that Samuel was a king, uh, right around 1076 BC, uh, Samson, who we're going to talk about, is also a judge. Okay? The only difference is, is Samuel is a judge all the way until 1051, where Samson is only a judge until 1056, because at that point Samson died. Because Samson is crazy. And he constantly do things, did things that should have gotten him killed, and then eventually one of those things did uh, get him uh, killed. Uh, but that's just to give you an, kind of an idea of, on a timeline, a time frame of what it looks like in compared to what you guys uh, studied the last two weeks. So the story of Samson can be found in Judges. It's in uh, Judges chapter 13 and through, uh, through 16, and it's very, very bizarre. So what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, just a few verses real quick that kind of set us up uh, for, the, for the story of Samson, and then after that, uh, we are going to just kind of cliff notes through the rest of it. So if you would open up your Bibles with me to, uh, to Judges chapter 13, verse 1 through 5, as my beautiful wife hands me my Bible that I left on the, on the pew. Okay, uh, verse 1 says, And the people of Israel, again, they did it again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man named, or a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we thank you so much uh, just for just uh, that you've given us this an extended weekend, Father God, where we can have a little bit of time off, hopefully with our families and spend some time together in community, God. We just pray you'll, uh, for everybody who's traveling today uh, and with the family and uh, going up north and whatever it may be for that kind of last hurrah before school starts, God. We just pray a blessing over everybody who's doing that today, God. 
And we just pray right now that in this room today, you'll be evident, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me this morning and that I wouldn't say anything that is not of you, God, but that everything that you would have me to say, I would say, and that every other part of this thing would fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth, Lord, if it's not of you. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, I'm still, I'm still kind of disturbed by you guys not liking my Austin Young joke. <laughs> I haven't told that to him yet. You think he'll like it more? I hope somebody, he's not going to like it either? Gosh, man. Okay, so as you see as, from what we read, the story of Samson, it begins with Samson's mom, Baron. Okay? It is very similar to the story you heard two weeks ago about Samuel's mom, who was also Baron. It's, it's kind of a recurring theme in the Bible, which we can't just go over too quickly. Abraham's wife, Sarah, she's barren, and then God does a miracle. We get Isaac. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is barren. God does a miracle. They get twins. Uh, Elizabeth in the New Testament, she's barren, and God does a miracle, and we get John the Baptist, who's also a Nazarite, takes the Nazarite vow as well, right? But there's just something about this that I don't want you to read over too quickly. Because God is not tied down to our impossible situations. He's just not. He's not tied down to our impossible situations. And when he shows up and he makes himself obvious, it always leads to him doing something so much bigger than we could ever even imagine. And if you're here in this room today, and you're in a situation that maybe it feels like it's totally impossible. You have no idea how you're going to navigate it. You have no idea how you're going to end up on the other side of it. Just know this. God works through the impossible situations to write the most incredible stories. The stories of redemption. The stories of restoration. The stories of reconciliation. So let's look at the story of Samson. So the first thing that I want you to know, and we read it, was that uh, Samson was called from before birth to be something called a Nazarite. This is what it says at the first half of verse 5. It says, No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now, the Nazarite vow is something you can read about in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 6, uh, 1 through 8. And what it means is you abstain completely from drinking any alcohol, nothing from the vine at all, uh, and you can't touch anything that's dead. And you don't cut your hair at all during the entire period of this vow. But the thing about the Nazarite vow, if you read it closely in Numbers, is it's a voluntary vow. It is not something that you are forced to do. And it is also a vow that is only for a limited period of time. Okay? It's more like a fast, right? Where you say, well, for this amount of time, I'm going to set myself apart and live this specific way. It was called a time of separation in Numbers. But in Samson's case, it was not limited to a time frame. And in Samson's case, it was divinely appointed of him to do this. It wasn't something he got to choose to do or not to do. He was appointed. He was called to live a life, a whole life of separation. So he has a call. It's very obvious from those opening scriptures that Samson has a call on his life. He's been chosen. He's been set apart to play a huge role in the redemption that Israel so desperately needed. So he's divinely appointed from birth to be a Nazarite. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to fly through some things. And I want you to just kind of bear with me because this story is so loaded and there's so much in it, but there's so much application. And when we get to it, I think you'll really be blessed by it. But let me just get you through the story. This is Cliff Notes, so it's going to go kind of fast. But it's very obvious that this guy has a very, very divine, significant call on his life. But Samson does not like to follow rules. 
He doesn't like him at all. He hates rules. He's a troublemaker. Quite frankly, the guy is crazy. He really, really is. He's a troublemaker. He always has to get his way. And the way that this guy lived his life should never be modeled. It should never be like, this is a role model. This is a hero. Never, ever try to be like Samson. Okay? I'm going to say that right from the beginning. In fact, more than almost all the other stories in the Old Testament, this might be one of the worst. Like the worst, like, don't be like that guy. That's, that's his story, right? He's just not really a hero, even though, you know, and some people consider him a hero. So Samson, he grows up, and he does not cut his hair because of the Nazarite vow, but he disregards everything else in the Nazarite vow. He disregards everything. He does his whole life according to himself, and he doesn't really care about anybody. And he meets a Philistine girl. And he likes this Philistine girl, and he tells this girl that he, he tells his parents that he wants to marry this Philistine girl, and he asks uh, for them to arrange it for him. And they're not happy about this. They ask him not to do that. And I'm going to explain to you why. I know today you're like, well, why is that a big deal? I, I get that, but it was a very big deal in that day. Because you have to remember this, okay? The Philistines ruled over Israel, okay? They, they, were, they were in charge of Israel. But it's, this is, you have to understand this one thing about the way that they ruled. The Philistines did not rule over Israel the way that Assyria one day would or the way that it would happen in Babylon. They didn't do it like Rome did it where they took over the world by going to people and saying, hey, who's Lord? Is Caesar Lord? And if you didn't say Caesar's Lord, then they'd kill you. That was not the way of the Philistines. The Philistines were very, very subtle in the way that they led and in their approach. They didn't walk around killing people who did not confess their way of life. But what they were doing was they were infiltrating the culture of Israel. They were doing things intentionally like intermarrying with, these, with, with the Israelites. And they were subtly conforming the Israelites to their culture. Okay? So they were conforming them to their culture and to their gods. But they weren't doing it through violence as much as some of these other empires did. But culturally, the goal was to weed out the Jewish faith. And because... It wasn't being done through acts of cruelty, like we're familiar with. It wasn't even noticed. And what little was noticed, it wasn't necessarily considered to be a bad, a bad thing. It was not a noticeable thing at all. So in, in a little while, we're going to get to this moment when uh, the Israelites actually go to Samson and they turn him over to the Philistines. Uh, and, and, and the reason he's doing that is because, the reason they do that is because Samson is actually fighting a way of life that they'd gotten comfortable with. Uh, Israel got uncomfortable with under the Philistines. But if you're to read like historians today who, are, who write about this time period, they'll tell you that this was one of the most dangerous periods in history for Israel, where they were, most cl- where they were the closest to extinction. More so than in some of these other periods when people actually were threatening to wipe them out and extinct them, right? Because of the, the way that this had happened. Because like, it's like this, right? At least when the armies and the militaries and the militias came after Israel and they knew that it was violence, at least then they would stand by their heroes. At least then they would stand with the judges and the people who are standing up to the oppressors. But in this day, that wasn't what was happening, and I think we need to make very, very, we need to take the care to think this through, right? Because oftentimes the things in our world that are the most dangerous are the things that creep up on us. The things that enter our world subtly and over time slowly begin to erode the fabric of our being. And before long, we're saying things and we're doing things that a few years ago, we would never say that. Why would we ever even think those things? And now we're living like that's okay and we don't even realize that we've changed. 
without even realizing it, kind of our consciousness and our convictions, they can actually be shifted. Okay? It can happen to a culture. It's obviously happened to our culture. And it can happen to a person's heart. Because really, in order to get the culture, you first have to get people's hearts and start, you know. So the things in life, whatever it is in our world that persists the longest, will always have an effect on your life. So if in your life you have bitterness, right? Or if in your life you have sinfulness, and if these things can creep in undetected, it can bring your whole world down before you ever even realize what was happening. And that's, quite frankly, what was happening to Israel during the time of Samson. So it's no surprise that Samson's parents would be like, no, you can't marry a Philistine girl. Intermarriage is part of their plan. That's what they're trying to do. And because that's part of their plan, and this couple knew that their son had a divine call to be a redeemer of the people from, from the Philistines, they're like, you can't do that. You can't play into the hand of the enemy. But this is what the Bible says in Judges 14.4. It says, Samson's father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Because at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So God was using this, okay? Okay, so now fl- flying through this, right? Samson, he's getting ready to go, and he's getting ready to talk to this girl. And as he's going to talk to this girl, he passes this lion, and this lion attacks him. He's like, I'm going to attack Samson. Samson sees this lion, and with his bare hands, he kills the lion. He's like, and he's like, whoa, I didn't, whoa, that was awesome. I can kill a lion with my bare hands. Like, that's, but he doesn't tell anybody that he can do this. He doesn't tell anybody that it happened. Um, so he kills a lion with his bare hands, okay? And then from there, he proceeds on like it was nothing. He goes and he meets this girl. He spends some time with her and he realizes, I really like her. I'm definitely going to marry her, okay? So after that, uh, some time passes. He goes back out. He passes the lion again, okay? And then the lion, the dead lion that he had, ripped apart with his bare hands, is now laying there dead, and there were bees swarming around this lion, and they, and they were making all this honey inside the carcass of this lion, okay? And so what he does is what anybody would do. He scoops it out, and he starts eating it. <laughs> and then he takes some with him as he goes, continues to eat it. He goes home, and he gives some to his parents. But he doesn't tell his parents where it comes from. The problem with this is Samson is a Nazarite, so he's not supposed to touch anything unclean, okay? That's the part of the, 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 the vow is you don't touch death. The other problem is, is it's disgusting, and he's spreading it around to people not knowingly, and it is an unclean thing, so now he's spreading uncleanly, the unclean thing around to his parents, and he's not telling them. They don't even know they're doing something unclean, and he's doing it like it's funny. He thinks it's funny. He thinks it's so funny, in fact, that he's at a feast with a bunch of his wife's friends a few days later, right? And he thinks it's so funny, he tells a joke about it to his, her Philistine friends, okay? He tells a joke. He tells them a riddle, and he issues a bet. There's 30 of them there, and he says, there's 30 of you, there's one of me. I'm going to tell you a riddle. You have seven days to figure out this riddle. And if in seven days, between all 30 of you, you can figure out this riddle, I will give each of you a new garment, okay? A new garment and a change of clothes. But if you can't figure it out... All of you have to give me one each. So basically, I'm going to fill my closet with, your guys, with 30 of your guys' clothes because I'm going to win this bet, right? And so they agree to the bet, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's a shirt or whatever, you know, a garment. It's probably, they're probably more expensive in, back then. I don't know. But, um, so they, they can't figure it out, right? Because like, he's like, if you can't figure it out, then this is what's going to happen. He gives it to them, and they can't figure it out. This is the, this is the riddle. He says, out of the eater came something to eat. 
So dumb. Out of the strong came something sweet. This is actually in the Bible. Okay? So he gives them a week to solve it. They cannot solve it. And they start to freak out. Like they really can't afford to lose their clothes, I guess. And so on day three, they're like, we're not going to be able to figure this out. So on day four, they go to his wife. And this is how serious this gets. He's telling a joke. It's a joke. He's just trying to turn it into a bat, make some money off of it. And it turns on him. And, and, and these 30 Philistines tell his wife, if you can't figure out the answer and bring it to us, we are going to burn you and your father and your house. We're going to burn you guys over clothes. That's for clothes, okay? That is for clothes. So, now we're into arson, potential murder. And uh, she asks him for the answer. He doesn't tell her. She asks him again. He doesn't tell her. He asks him again. He doesn't tell her. Then on day seven, finally, finally, he tells her the answer. And because she doesn't want to die, she runs and she tells these Philistines the answer to this question. And this is what happens, right? They tell Samson they figured it out. And this is what they say to him. Well, what's sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? So Samson lost the bet. But you can't miss this, okay? This is what he does. He knows right away that his wife gave him the answer. And he's really, really mad. He's like, there's no way they would have known otherwise. They totally cheated. And they did. They totally cheated. And he felt cheated. So this is what he decides to do. He's like, fine. I'm going to pay them back for what they did to me. I owe you this, that's fine. So he reasons that if he owes them these clothes, then they're not coming out of his closet. So what he does is he he he's like, these Philistines are cheaters, they will they're they're they cheated, that's how they won. So he rages, he goes to town and he kills 30 Philistines, their friends, takes their garments, comes back, and pays the bet with the garments of their friends. It's like, in other words, you won the riddle, but you still lost because I killed all your friends. That's literally what he did. So what started out as a joke, no big deal at all. It ends with 30 people who weren't even there losing their lives. Okay? I know this is insane. It it gets worse. Trust me. It's it's so demented. Okay. After a few days, um, so Samson's mad at his wife. He's not really, they're not on talking terms or whatever. After a few days, the Bible says, during the time of the wheat harvest. Okay? You can't miss this. It's during the time of the wheat harvest. Samson's just like, you know what? I haven't seen my wife in a while. Maybe it's not really her fault. They obviously like held it over her. They were probably going to hurt her. I want to go see her. So he wants to go see his wife now. And I know I'm flying through this. He goes to her father, says, I want to see my wife. And her father won't let him. And this is why he won't let him. It's actually really sad. It, it, her father says this to Samson. I really thought that you utterly hated her. Which is really sad. So I gave her away to your companion. The Bible actually says that they gave it to Samson's best man. Like, dude. (laughs) Okay. So her father then offers Samson uh, her younger sister. Samson rejects the offer. And once again, here's a man who'd been cheated out of something that he cares about. Something that matters to him. And of course, a wife matters a whole lot more than some clothes, right? So this is what he does, right? Remember, he killed 30 people over some clothes. He's just really mad. So what he does is he goes and he catches 30 foxes, okay? He catches, I'm sorry, 300 foxes. 
catches 300 foxes. And what he does is he then turns the foxes toward each other. And like this, he ties one rope for every two foxes, one torch to every two foxes facing the opposite directions. And then he lights the torches and he sends these frenzied foxes into all of the grain and all of the olive orchards. And everything burns. All of it burns. Remember though, the Bible specifically said that this is during the wheat harvest. Okay? This happens during the harvest. This was the one time all year when the crops produced enough, enough harvest to sustain the entire community for the whole year. And now it's all gone. He ruined the entire city's harvest for the entire year. Imagine the impact that that would have on a community. So of course the Philistines are like, well, who did this? Who burned all of our crops? Who ruined our economy? And they said, oh, Samson did that because his father-in-law gave away his wife to his best man. And so then, of course, the Philistines are like, well, someone has to pay. So then they go, and they do to his wife what she was originally afraid of, and they burn her. And they burn her father. In other words, they kill her. The Philistines kill her wife, or his wife and her father and to, to pay back Samson. So I know it's like... What is going on here, right? Now, Samson, of course, is the wrong guy to pay back for anything because he's always going to do more to you than you did to him. This is what Judges 15, uh, 6 through 7 says. So the Philistines came and they burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I will, then I swear I will be avenged on you. After that, I'll quit. After I do evil to the people who have done evil to me, then I'll be done. But this situation's a little different. See, Samson doesn't act immediately this time. It says that Samson, from there, he goes away. And he hides in the cleft of a rock. And he thinks, and he simmers, and he, and he, he simmers on his feelings, and he thinks about it all, and he processes it all. And I want us to pause for just a second. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where time doesn't heal the wounds? Where time doesn't make it better, it only breaks the wounds open further than they already are. You know, they, right? They, it, time doesn't heal it, it just adds fuel to the fire. You know, they, they, like people say, it, time heals your wounds. You know, if you give it some time, you'll be okay. And sometimes that's, that's true, but it's not true with people who are bitter. Okay? It's not true for the people who choose to live in the places that they were hurt. In the deepest ways. And so in those situations, like in Samson's case, the more time you have to reflect, the more you start to think about all the reasons why this person or that person deserves this or that to happen to him, and it's just terrible, right? You start playing scenes over in your mind as to how this is going to be made right, as if that's your job to make it right. So sometimes fuel, uh, sometimes it can be fuel for your fires. Sometimes we don't need time. Sometimes we just need help. Sometimes we just need to talk to somebody. Sometimes we just need Jesus to kind of step in and intervene in like the most amazing way he possibly can and do what only he can do. But there's a reason, guys, that the Bible, especially with the red letters and the words of Jesus, they're very, very clear about things like mercy. They're very, very clear about things like peacemaking. You know, one of the, uh, the Beatitudes says this. God tells us that the peacemakers shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, and, and I started to wonder about this. It's like, well, who's calling them sons of God? 
Who would call the peacemaker a son of God? And I want to propose to you that there's a, at least a possibility that the people who, that the ones who are calling peacemakers sons of God, this is not like a heavenly call. This is an earthly call. This is me. If I'm a peacemaker, then Jaime calls me that when he sees that in my life. And let me tell you why I believe it might be that. Because this is such a hard thing to do. It is an absolute image of God. And what God is actually like. Anybody who can reflect this character of God, the kind that, that, that can actually stand in the middle of an argument and not take a side but just make everybody okay, that's a really hard thing to do. And if you can actually reflect that character of God, that part, something that to us seems beyond human to do, I believe that when people see that in you, that rare quality in you, they say, of course you belong to God. How else would you be able to do that? Because people can't just do that. But one thing that makes the Beatitudes really, really powerful is that the Beatitudes actually build off of each other. Okay? So just for example, I'll just give you a few of them. The first one is blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's salvation, right? First is salvation. Then you get to number three, and it's meekness, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. <clears throat> See, when you're meek, what that means is you're actually willing to lay down your strength for the sake of the greater good. Meekness is not weakness, Meekness is, hey, I, I, I may have the strength. I'm a person who has the ability to do more than I am, but I'm choosing to refrain for the sake of everybody. Samson was not meek. And because Samson was not meek, of course he wasn't going to have mercy, which is the fifth beatitude. If, you can't, if you're not meek, you're not going to be able to have mercy, right? And if you don't have mercy, you're never going to be a peacemaker, right? Because if you can't show mercy to somebody yourself, how are you going to stand between two people that can't show mercy and show them how to do it? That's what it means to be a peacemaker. It cannot be done. They build off of each other. So by the time you get to the final one, the eighth one, the one that says that you are persecuted for, for his namesake, you're already a peacemaker. So you know you're not going to fight back, right? Because your heart had already been made pure because you showed mercy. You know, I often talk about this one, the fifth beatitude. Uh, it's, the one I, it's my favorite beatitude. It says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And I know you've heard this, but I'm going to show you why I had to say it to you again, right? This is the only beatitude in which the person receives the exact same thing that they give, okay? It's the exact same thing. If, you, if you're merciful, you get mercy shown to you, right? And if we all live by this, if our community can hone in on this, then everybody's gracious and loving toward each other, and we're always merciful, and we're seeing the world through each other's eyes, and it just creates this beautiful thing because mercy circles, but what we have to realize and what this story shows us is the opposite is also true. In the same way that mercy circles, vengeance circles, revenge circles, hatred circles, judgment circles. So the fuel for violence, right, the opposite of mercy, it works the exact same way as mercy does. And if we get into it, it's just going to keep coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. Let me show you with this story, okay? The Philistine army, they come to Israel, right? They, in the, they, they're after Samson, they come to Israel, and they start attacking Israel, which that's out of character for the Philistines. They don't normally do that, and that's not the way they were ruling. So Israel's like, dude, Philistines, why are you attacking us? Like, this is not how you've been doing this. What's going on? And this is what they, what they, what they tell them. They say, Israel, this is why we're doing this. He said, we don't want you, we just want Samson. We're just doing what he did to us. That's um, Judges 15.10. One verse later, they go to Samson, and they say, Samson, can we, 
can we take you to the Philistines? They don't attack him. Israel goes to Samson. The Israelites go and they say, Samson, we want to take you to the Philistines. Um, this is, you know, we, we like what they're doing. We like, that. we like our lives under their rule. It's not so bad. We don't mind it. You're kind of disrupting that, right? To say, I mean, this is what they do. They say, Samson, we like our lives. Why are you doing this? And you know what Samson says? He doesn't say, you guys have gotten comfortable in slavery. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, this, the, the, the Philistines are destroying God's people and we need our freedom. You know what he says? This is what he says. In one verse later, he says, I'm just doing what they did to me. Judgment circles. Vengeance circles. And it will never, ever, ever, ever stop. And what Samson does in this moment, just to prove that it will never stop, it escalates even more. He, d- he goes quietly. He says, fine, Israel, why don't you take me to the Philistines? He's, he's, he's a war-minded person, and he can't be anything else. He's, he's having a really hard time getting out of that. So he allows his own people to bind him and to take him to the Philistine armies because he wants to be with the Philistine armies because he wants to hurt the Philistine armies. And then when there's a thousand Philistine, or several thousand Philistines there, they, they turn him over, Israel leaves, Samson breaks free, and he single-handedly, he gets the... He gets the uh, the, the jawbone of a donkey, and he single-handedly with this jawbone kills a thousand Philistines in this one setting. Retaliation. I'm just doing what they did to me. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 38 and 39, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. See, the way of Jesus, it says, I won't allow your oppression to bring me to your level. Jesus says, yes, in the days of old, this is how we did it. We did to people what they did to us. But now we love people even when they're persecuting us. We love people even when they're hurting us. We love people even when they've cost us more than we ever imagined we could ever lose in our lives. Now we turn the other cheek. But the way of Samson said, what can I do to cause you more harm than you caused me? The way of Jesus is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that, all that, that crazy is the story that leads us to the story that most of us are familiar with, with Samson. He's a man who always gets his way. He shows nobody grace. He lived opposite of everything that we would ever, that we'd later see in Jesus Christ. Opposite. He's a man who always had to hurt people more than they hurt him. He loses a bet, and he kills 30 people to pay off that bet. He loses his wife, as in like, she's given away. He kills an entire economy because somebody has to pay. Because somebody always has to pay. Then they kill his wife. He kills a thousand of their men. And everybody's after him. And the whole thing is out of control. And it's only after all that do we finally meet Delilah. (laughs) And she's a Philistine. And he falls in love with her. And the Philistines have a 
ton to offer, of money to offer her. And they say, we're going to give you each, each of us are going to give you 1,100, basically it's 5,500 of these things that probably would be equivalent of over a million dollars today if you can help us bring Samson into your hands, into our hands. And now this is just the cliff note, so we're going to fly through what happens, but this is what happens. Basically, she begs Samson. She says, Samson, please tell me your secret. I need to know the secret. I need to know the secret. I need to know the secret. Um, and of course, Samson, at first, he's really, really smart. He's like, he tricks her. He just makes something up See, to see how it goes. He's like, okay, if you, if you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried, I'll lose my strength. So she does it. And then, of course, the Philistines come, he breaks free, and he attacks them all because he's Samson and he lied to her. And that wasn't a clue enough for him. So then she, she, so he outsmarted her, right? You'd think. But she obviously outseduced him because she just does it again. He tells her again. He does it again. He, goes, he talks about the dreads. He just that's my hair. Nope, none of it. But it's the fourth time. Four times that he tells her the secret. He makes up secrets, the first three. She does the secrets, and then he, he doesn't catch on. So finally, 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 she says, if you really love me, you tell me your secret. He says, fine. I have a Nazarite vow. No razor has ever touched my hair. If you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength. It'll be over. I'll be just like everybody else. So she falls, he falls asleep on her lap. And uh, she betrays him. She cuts his hair, or she has somebody cut his hair. They turn him over to the Philistines. He tries to break free, he tries to fight, but he's not strong anymore. Because he lost it. Because he'd given away the secret. The Spirit of God left him. But I want you to watch this. Because it's a very recurring theme here. And if you just read this one story between Samson and Delilah, you can miss the recurring theme. But this, is a, this guy has a tragic story. There's nothing not tragic about this story. It's so sad that somebody with such a calling would actually live this way. He had a destiny. And when he, but when he finally falls, the Philistines, they gouge out his eyes. Okay? They put him in prison. And they start saying that their God delivered him into their hands. Like, not the God of Israel, but their, their God who they're trying to conform Israel to serve. Oh, he gave us Samson. And the Bible says that then what happens is they're all drunk at a party. They're all having a party, and they call Samson out. You're going to be our entertainment. They're mocking him. They tie him to these two pillars. They're using him as entertainment. There's 3,000 people in this house, okay? And what happens is this. Samson prays one last final prayer. And this is what it is. It's Judges 16, 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, Please remember me, and please strengthen me, only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Even in these last moments, Samson, who he knows he's going to die, he's fine pro, like, getting that to go a little quicker, expediting that a little. He prays the most absurd prayer you could possibly pray in your entire life, like he doesn't say, God, rescue me. He doesn't say, God, let's do this so that we can bring you glory. He doesn't say, hey, God, they're, they're, they're crediting their stupid little gods who don't do anything. That, that they, that they have, that they don't, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing to me. He says, God, all I want, my dying wish in my life is to pay them back because they took my eyes. And there are 3,000 people in this room. And that feels like a pretty good trade, right? 3,000 people for two eyes. So the story ends. 
by Samson killing 3,000 Philistines and himself because they took his eyes. A man who had such a call on his life before he was even born, yet he was so consumed with revenge, so consumed with the past, so consumed with what other people did to him and not being able to let it go, and with vengeance and judgment that ultimately it found him on a circle that there was no way out of for him. I want us to end today by looking at one more part, the first part, the last part of the very, very first verse that we read. This is when we're talking about Samson, he says this, and he shall begin. He won't conclude it, but he'll begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines, they controlled Israel for a while. Uh, It says over a period of about 40 years. And what God did is he used the life of Samson. He did use him to show Israel you can't stay captive forever. You can't stay under that rule forever. You cannot let yourself be absorbed into a culture that's opposite of how God has called you to live. Serving gods that aren't real. Growing content in your captivity. Growing content in the things of the world when God has something different for you. So God did use a very, very flawed character. He always uses flawed characters to do things like this. And so he used a very flawed character to begin something in Israel. But it's interesting because it says that he only began the work. So God used Samson to show the Philistines, hey, your empire is going to end eventually, right? One guy almost brought the entire thing down single-handedly. Your empire is not bigger than God. When God decides he's going to bring you down, you're, you're going down. But he's the first one to show you, well, we may not have control forever. The God that they serve may be more powerful than the gods that we serve. I mean, how else could one man overtake an entire army? And the story teaches us, quite frankly, that God is bigger than our biggest adversary. He's bigger than our biggest problems. God is bigger. But the story also teaches us that an eye for an eye will leave everyone blind. A life for a life leaves everybody dead. Nobody wins in this story. This is like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Okay? Everybody dies and in the worst, most brutal, absurd ways possible. And quite frankly, it's incredibly reflective of the way that we hold things over each other today. And and it's a very cryptic look, but it's a very reflective look of, of what will happen in your life if you keep doing that to people, if you keep holding things over people, if you keep living that way. It's an incredibly reflective look of the way that if we allow bitterness to hold us down from who we're supposed to be, what it will do to us and what it will do to our world and what the world will miss because we missed it. It's incredibly reflective of the heart of every person who's ever had someone else do something to you that was so wrong, so painful, that you actually decided in your heart it would be worth it to lose everything in order to stay angry. That it's worth it to lose everything in order to make them feel a little bit of what they made you feel. But church, it is not worth it. It's not worth it. The world has been a battlefield for one-upping the next person, the last person, for causing all sorts of pain that we've been experiencing. It's been happening forever. Quite frankly, that is the reason that we want to build the reconciliation table on that side lot. That's why this table matters so much. You're like, well, what's the reconciliation table? Why does it even matter? This is why it matters. It's not just about having a table. It's about setting a standard in our community that we are not interested in getting what we're owed. 
We're not interested in getting paid back for the things that have been taken from us and from the things that we have lost. We are interested in reconciling with people, with the people who have hurt us, with the people that we've hurt. That is the only way to live. So the story starts by saying Samson will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. But that work was only, was, wasn't complete in Samson. It was complete in David, or the Philistines, and then ultimately double, double completed in Jesus uh, when he saved everything in Israel. But when it comes to the Philistines, it was complete in David. The redemption was complete. The same David who just like Samson, guys, he made many, many, many mistakes. He hurt many, many, many people. He made a lot of enemies. But ultimately, at the end of David's life, he's able to thank God because God prepared a table for him in the presence of his enemies. That's Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is where we get the concept of the reconciliation table from. David does not want to, he doesn't, he's not thanking God that he set a table in the presence of his enemies because he wants to hurt his enemies. No, it is a sulha, it is a meal covenant, it is an opportunity in which, what, what that is referring to is a, a meal in which two people who are at odds with each other come together and they say, you know what? We are not going to leave this table under any circumstances until we have figured out what it's going to take for us both to be okay. Until we have figured out what it's going to take to move forward together. We are going to make it right. We're going to come to an agreement. And and I know for me in my life, right, like as I get a little bit older, I kind of have one thing working for me and another really working against me, and I think it's like that for all of us, right? On the one hand, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning so much. So in theory, I know more than ever why I need to forgive people who take advantage of me and who use me and who hurt me, who talk bad about me. But on the other hand, I'm experiencing so much and it's making it harder and harder and harder for me to forgive because I'm being wrong more and more and more in my life. And I'm sure it's the same with all of you. The more you go through, the more you have to face. You got how do I fix this? I'm experiencing a lot and it's making it harder. And every time I try to step out and I try to do something and it ends up with me feeling hurt or it ends up with me feeling betrayed, it makes me not want to step out anymore. I don't want to feel the weight of being hurt anymore. And if I'm not careful, I will allow my experiences and you will allow your experiences to cause you to make judgments about other people. Judgments that we're not qualified to make. Judgments that we're not called to make. That's why I believe that James says this in James 2.13. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Because something in our lives has got to kill judgment. Or else it gets really out of control. And just like in the way that the Philistines took over Israel, it starts really, really small. Really, really subtle. You don't even see it happening. You don't even realize that it's happening. But even as it grows, right, even though this chasm that exists like between who you once were and who you are once judgment takes over, even though it's an enormous gap because it happens so slowly, you don't even realize it sometimes. You don't even notice that it's happening. Because it's easy to justify anger when somebody's legitimately wronged you. But judgment's a circle. And it will always come back on you. But like Matthew 5, 7 so beautifully says, mercy is also a circle. And it always triumphs over judgment. Every single time. Because you'll never win by hurting someone else. You'll never win by winning a mental battle in your mind against someone else. But you will win if you love. 
That's what Jesus taught us. Jesus taught us that love always triumphs. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. And just like Samson, Jesus had a lot of people beating him, a lot of people mocking him, making fun of him, being entertained at his behalf. But yet the entire time all he showed was mercy. When a mercy, mercy, mercy. To the thief on the cross who's next to him, mercy. To the people hurting him, Father, forgive them, mercy. Straight from the mouth of the one man who did single-handedly bring down the empire. And he didn't do it through violence. He did it through love. He did it through mercy. And he did it through grace. His name's Jesus. And he wants to meet you right where you are today, no matter where that may be. No matter how much judgment you may have in your heart, no matter how many times you may have been wronged, no matter how many times the church may have wronged you, and you're like, man, I don't even know why I'm in here today, but I'm here today, and God, do something. He wants to meet you. He wants to be something for you. He wants to be life to you. He's not here to judge you. We're not here to judge you, but to love you and to embrace your mess and to show you why mercy always triumphs over judgment every single time. It's the only way to live. It is a pathway to life.